This episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast is sponsored by The Good Book Company, publisher of The Dignity Revolution, a book by Daniel Darling on reclaiming God's rich vision for humanity. More information at thegoodbook.com. This is the Gospel Coalition podcast, where we seek to renew the contemporary church in the ancient gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Colin Hansen. Today's podcast is a talk by Jen Michelle on why humans have such deep longings for home. It was recorded at the Gospel Coalition's 2018 Women's Conference in Indianapolis. Well, it's a little bit too big of a room for me to show you this wonderful book that I brought to show you. This is the little golden book that I loved as a child. It's called My Little Mommy, and I can absolutely prove to you that this is the exact copy that my mother read to me because my name is inscribed on the front page, Jennifer Pollock, and apparently you could have bought this for 29 cents back in you know the late 70s. I was born in 1974. Um, and I wanted just to read a little bit a part, a part of this book to you. It's a book that I loved as a child, and it's the only book I think that my mom kept of my early childhood. And it starts like this. This is my house, and I am the mommy. My children are Annabelle, Betsy, and Bonnie. They are good little children and do just as I say. I put on their coats and they go out to play. Billy is daddy. He works in the city. He has a new car. Isn't it pretty? And this is where it gets a little bit like pathological that I love this book so much. I do the dishes and sweep the floor and wipe the fingerprints off the door. I wash the clothes in my washing machine. I scrub them with soap and rinse them clean. Then I hang them on the line to dry. I'll have to iron them by and by. My children like to go for a ride. They sit in the buggy side by side. Now I will teach you the ABC and who can count to 10 for me. I think it's time for me to bake. I'll make some cookies and ginger cake. My neighbor comes for a cup of tea. We have a party by the cherry tree. Oh dear, I'm afraid Betsy is ill. I'll put her to bed and give her a pill. I'll call on the phone for Dr. Dan. He'll come as soon as he can. Danny is doctor and he comes in a hurry. He takes her temperature and says, don't worry. She'll be well as quick as a wink. It's just the mumbly bumps, I think. Dinner is ready, don't be late. Put on your bibs and sit up straight. We're having potatoes and blueberry stew. Now eat your spinach, it's good for you. Sit on my lap, it's story time. I'll read a poem and a nursery rhyme. It's bath time now for my little dears. I scrub their necks and wash their ears. I tuck them in bed and sing them a song and they'll be asleep before very long. We mommies have a lot of work to do. Good night, dollies. I'm sleepy too. So that's the book that I loved as a child. And I think it's funny to kind of look back on it. And I think, why did I love that story so much? You know, why did I want to be that little mommy wiping the fingerprints from the door and hanging the wash up to dry? And um, I want to tell you that that's a beautiful story, but I also want to give you this good news, that that is not the gospel story of home. 
That is not the gospel story of home. And so if you've come today and maybe there's a desire for marriage and you're not married, or maybe your marriage has broken apart, or maybe you've wanted to have children and haven't been able to, or maybe you have children and they've disappointed you, or they're walking far from the Lord, or maybe there's just fragmented relationships in your family with your parents or with your siblings. Um, I want to tell you that there's a better story of home that the gospel has for all of us. Because if this were the gospel story of home, who gets left out? Who gets left out? It's the people who aren't married. It's the people who don't have the children. It's the people who don't have the ideal family. You know what? It's the women of color all throughout, you know, the history of the United States who didn't, you know, this is a middle-class kind of white story of home, right? That daddy goes up, Billy goes off to work, and mommy gets to stay home. It's not an economic reality for so many people. In this workshop, I want to tell you the good news about home according to the gospel. And I, I have these kind of big ideas. And the first one is, is that everyone gets home in the kingdom of God. Everyone gets home in the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter if you're married or unmarried or have children or don't have children or divorced or not. Home was God's first gift to his people. We're going to go back to the beginning in Genesis to see that home was a gift that God had given to his people. And we can look forward to the end of the story too, right? Actually, the new beginning where God reestablishes home for his people again. And we learn about that in Revelation. So that's sort of the story. We're going to just kind of travel the narrative of Scripture and see how that's true, that everyone gets home in the kingdom of God. And the other thing, I, here's another big idea that I want to talk about, is that we are all a homesick people. We are all a homesick people. You know, I live in Canada, which is amazing. I've lived there for seven years. I grew up, woohoo, yes. I grew up in the States. I am a resident alien, right? I live in a country. I don't have the passport of that country. We've just had an election, and I wasn't able to vote because I'm not Canadian. I'm, in a certain sense, one of those people that kind of experiences homesickness, right? Except that I really, what's really true is that I like Toronto a lot better than, that's why we've stayed, um, than Chicago where we came from. But it, whether or not you have lived in the same place your whole life, whether or not your family is intact or it isn't, we are all a homesick people, and the good news of the gospel is that God wants to give us home, these, that these deep longings of our heart for home will be satisfied through Christ. And the, the, the last kind of big idea that I want to talk about is just that getting this story right matters. It matters a lot to know that this isn't the this isn't the gospel story of home. It's a beautiful story, and I want to say that I'm I'm really grateful that in a lot of ways I am living this story. But I also know that I, I that there's a better story, and that I have to long for a better home than the earthly one that I have. 
that I have to understand my own homesickness because that's the kind of thing that draws my eyes toward Christ and eternity with him. Getting this story right matters. It deepens our understanding of God's character and it actually gives us a hope to proclaim to a homesick world. And that's what I'm really excited about. And, it, and I could, I don't know what happened with that man out on the rooftop of the parking garage. I don't know. I, I walked in about 110, and I don't know if you saw him. I don't know if that story has been resolved. But I think about a man who stands three stories up and considers the possibility of jumping. And I think that's a homesick person. And we have a hope for the homesickness of the world. Let's talk, first of all, I want to just travel a little bit through history. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I think it's important to say that this story of home that we have is a relatively new story of home. It's, it's a post-industrial revolutionary, post-industrial revolution story of home where, you know, dad goes to the office and mom stays at home. This, that wasn't the reality. If you were, for instance, I'm going to just give you some historical snapshots so we can think about the lives of women and their home lives throughout just even America's very short history as we know. 1750, if you were um, uh, living in the United States in 1750, well, it wouldn't have been the United States, it would have been the 13 colonies, but 93% um, of you would be married. You would be living with your husband. You probably would have married him at the age of 20, and you probably have about eight children. Your home is the center of your lives, okay? At, at home, you and your husband are raising your children. You're making your living at home. You know, you're contributing to the economic well-being of the family because you're raising the children, you're making the soap, you're making the candles, you're making the bedding, the clothes for every member of the family. Your husband is probably working out of the home. Maybe he's farming, maybe he's butchering, maybe he has a silversmith shop and you're kind of learning some of his skills as well because he's right there. Work is centered at home, families it's centered at home, and guess what? There is no time for fancy baking or needlework because you don't even have a stove or um, a sewing machine. And so when you think about your role as wife and mother in 1750, it's really just about survival, right? It's just about making sure that people are clothed and fed, and, uh, um, fed, and nobody is running for Martha Stewart of the year in 1750. 1850, though, changed, things changed a lot. The vast majority of you are still married, Although, as, women, as universities um, become more and more popular for actually both men and women in the late 19th century, if you go to college, you are going to seriously impede your chances of getting married. You have, um, by the end of the century, century you probably have about 3.5 children. You have a lot of technological in in inventions at your home that have lightened the housework for you. You have a stove. You have a manual sewing machine. And so you're, you know, yeah, there's a little kind of pride you take in your baking and your needlework um, because you have a little bit more time on your hand. So much is changing in the country in 1850. So many immigrants are coming into the country. The West is being settled. And so the politicians tell you that, you know, home is the stabilizing force in society. And so you, as a, as a wife and a mother, you have an incredibly important role to make sure that children are brought up well. In fact, your church is 
Jeremy's going to tell you this too. They're going to even, there are, um, there's a pastor at the time, Horace Bushnell, who almost makes the church, uh, the house something of a church. He says, the house, having a domestic spirit of grace dwelling in it, should become the church of childhood. I mean, that's how much home is valued in the middle of the 19th century is that, you know, pastors are even saying things like there's, there's something so incredibly sacred about it. But that wasn't being said 100 years before that, when everybody was just trying to survive. And then you come to 1950, um, almost 70% of you are married. You, again, probably have married pretty early, around the age of 20. You might have three to four children each. Your family might have just moved out to the suburbs from the city, and truthfully, you feel maybe a little bit isolated. You read the story of Mrs. Eck in one of the national publications, and in this interview that she gives, she says this, the career I am educating my daughters for is marriage, pure and simple. It's the only lasting happiness a woman can have. And that's 1950. But we know that between 1950 and 1970, things changed dramatically in the United States, especially because in 1963, Betty Friedan publishes The Feminine Mystique, which basically says, you're actually not all that happy as a housewife, are you? There's a lot more fulfilling um, work for you to be doing in the world, a lot more interesting things for you to be doing. And you start to wonder, is that true? You know, home, it starts to be, whereas in 1850, it's something so incredibly valued, 1965, people are starting to say, maybe this is sort of an obstacle to my happiness. 2018, where are we? Less than half of you are married. 47%. A precipitous fall in the marriage rates since 1970. If you're a college graduate, you're marrying around the age of 27. You're having your first baby around the age of 30. You're having fewer babies than you've ever had. And there's this whole national conversation, right, about work and motherhood and how do we kind of have it all. I think I just want to bring this up, first of all, to say that we can see how culturally things shift and change, right? That it hasn't always, women's roles haven't always looked the same. The home hasn't always been interpreted as having the same kind of function in society. In fact, we're sort of at this time in our culture where even the desire for marriage and children is something that's up for grabs. So there, there's this really important way that we need to say as Christians that family and home in our domestic roles, it's important and also not ultimate. Important and not ultimate. And the good thing is, is that, you know, while culture shifts and changes, biblical truth never does. Biblical truth never does. It's reliable. When the Bible speaks to us, when we open the scripture, we know that God's speaking a living and active word according to Hebrews 4.12. We know that biblical truth is going to speak for all women across every generation in every country and every time and era, right? And if the biblical truth that we arrive at can't speak to all women at all times, then it's not the biblical truth, which is why this is sort of a 1950s, you know, American view of home. Not a bad, not a bad story, but again, not the whole story of the gospel, 
because of the people, again, that get left out in that story. So what I want to do is what I, I want to take us through Scripture, and I want us to think about this, this four-act story of Scripture. And you've thought about it. You've heard it preached this way probably at your churches that Act 1, we think about creation. God made the world. He spoke it into being. Act 2, the fall. We know that humanity rebels against God and there are consequences to their sin. Act three, redemption. God sends Jesus into human history to rescue us from the, from the consequences of our sin. And then act four, consummation. It's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, and God is putting the world to rights. What I want to do is I want to take act one, two, three, and four, and I don't want to just think about it in terms of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, or consummation. I want to really think about in that in the, through the angle of home. Okay, so let's start in Act 1, creation. If you have your Bible, you can open up to Genesis 1 and 2. And what I want to say here first is that creation is, is God's gift of home to his people. It's a, it's a home for humanity, and it's actually a home for God himself, which is crazy because we know that God can't really be confined to time and to space. But these two, sto these two kind of main ideas from Act 1, creation is a home for humanity. God's specifically making it that. He's not just kind of making the earth as if, wow, this is really cool, and I'll razzle-dazzle you and make this really cool science you know, experiment of the cosmos. It's not just an impersonal cosmos that God's making. It's a home for human beings to live in. And I'm going to talk about why I think that we can say this. It's also a home for God. I'm going to talk to you about how we see the temple imagery in Genesis 1 and 2. And then I want to talk about God as homemaker. There's something incredible to think about when we think about our deepest longings for home, right? What are our longings for home? They're about comfort and safety and belonging and rest and shelter and, and being known and community and all those things that we think about that, that are tied up in our longings for home. Imagine that God made a world where he intended to satisfy all of those, where he took upon himself the role of homemaker for you. First of all, why can we say that creation is a home? For, we can say this because when we look through creation, Genesis 1, let's just look at um, the first four verses, three, four or five verses. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Darkness, void, and God is there. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, if you're familiar with Genesis 1, we know that this, these verses set up a pattern, right? 
God speaks, calls something into being. He calls it good. And then the narrator of Genesis, said, the writer says, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And there was evening and morning the second day and the third day and the fourth day. And there are six days where God says it is good. And actually day six, he says it's very good when humanity arrives on the scene. There's one day though that God does not say it is good. And I've never noticed this until I started to study it a little bit more, and it's just verses 6 through 8. God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. God makes the sky and does not say it's good. But he says the dry land's good. He says the waters are good. He says the animals are good. He says, you know, the light's good. And then day six, humanity, it's very good. Why is the sky not good? And some scholars would say that when God calls something in creation good, what he means is habitable home-like, that it's not just good in the sense of beautiful and not just good in the sense of well-ordered, but good in the sense of this is going to contribute to the habitability of the earth. And so you have to have light and you have to have dry land. And, and I guess we could probably argue that the sky is also necessary for being the earth being habitable. But the point is, is that if God is making the world and what he has in mind as he makes this world for its goodness is that it will be habitable. It means there's a purpose behind creation. It means I'm preparing a home for the people that I'm bringing into this world. Um, so Adam and Eve come, and of course this is the climax of creation, that God's children have arrived, and you know God's creation displays his glory, and it, it's like he's worked, he's worked a whole week to welcome his people into his new home. And I don't know how many of you have ever nested for um, you know, getting your home prepared for a new baby, or maybe you have adopted a baby, or maybe you've had somebody come live with you long-term, and you get the house ready. God's getting the house ready here, making a home for his people. Now, why can we say that God is a homemaker? I mean, I, I guess we could say, well, he's making a home, so he's a homemaker. But I want you to think about the care that God is taking in Genesis 1 and 2. Um, if you look at other ancient creation myths at this time, like other stories that other cultures, ancient cultures were telling about you know, how the world came into being, there actually are quite a few similarities. But here is something from a person who's not even a Christian says, okay, if you look at this very popular ancient myth at the time, Unima Elish, she says that the humans are created from clay. That's kind of similar, like the soil. Man works for God. He tends the garden. He names the plants and the animals. But unlike in the Unima Elish, God creates a paradise specifically for man, has a relationship with him, and treats him as a kind of God. Like imbues him with such dignity, actually shares his image with humanity. He has children, right? It's not an impersonal cosmos with just, you know, people in it. It's a home and a family. 
And God is working on humanity's behalf. He's getting the house ready. And that's crazy because every other creation myth is basically like the gods get really bored and then they find, sort of figure out like, okay, well, maybe we should, have, we should create some people to serve us. And here, and of course, we are created to serve God. But in the creation story, God's actually serving us as well. What a gift of grace. And then there's special meaning in this word put. I Go to Genesis 2. There are, um, this is just like the tiniest little word that we'd never even think to pay attention to, but it's Genesis 2.8 and Genesis 2.15. So this is kind of a second version of the creation story, specifically God putting man and woman into a garden. And the Lord God, I'm reading Genesis 2.8, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man he had formed. That Hebrew word put is just means placed. He just put him in the garden. But go to Genesis 2.15, and there's a different Hebrew word used here, and we translate it the same in English. We say put. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now let me tell you about this word put. It's the same word that God uses when he puts lot outside of Sodom and Gomorrah. He shelters Lot, takes, them out, takes him out of the path of destruction and puts him into safety. So here that word put is rest and safety. It's also the Hebrew word about, um, that's used for when the priest put the manna and the, um, the table, the two tablets with God's commands on it. They put them into the Ark of the Covenant and they put on their linen garments. This is to signify things that are consecrated to God. So humanity is sheltered by God and also consecrated to God. God is making a home for his people and he's taking care of them. He's giving them rest and safety and welcome, placing them in their garden home. So I want to think about this first home and just quickly say I think we see several dimensions here of home, which I think translate for us what, what we long for when we think about home and how we can think about satisfying our longings for home even here and now, although we know we can't fully do that. Number one, home is about a geographical place. I mean, we're talking, there. this is a material world here. God put Adam and Eve in a garden. He actually gave them a place. Place was a gift for them. Now that will seem fairly obvious, but how many of us have heard the expression, home is where the heart is? As if to say that, you know, wherever you are, you can make your home anywhere. And I think in some respects that's true, but I also think that's to neglect that God gave place to his people. We long to be rooted in a place, which is why it is always a grief to be uprooted from a place. It's why I feel a deep grief in my own life for kind of having so much transience. Moved around a lot as a child, said I would never do that to my children, and I, of course, have done it to them as well, and I feel like, you know, where will I be buried? Like, where is my home, really, right? God gave his people a home. He gave them a place. And so when we talk about home, we're talking about place. 
We are. And guess what? Our final eternal home with Christ is also a place. It's not in the clouds. It is a new city. The other part, another part of home is just community. You know, God in the garden, he said, it's not good for man to be alone. You know, if I had only given to Adam place, that wouldn't have been enough. He needs place and he needs people. He needs his people, social connection, community. When we talk about home, we know that like you can stay in the same place your whole life and be incredibly lonely, right? You can move and sometimes when you make those really deep friendships, you can feel at home in a new place sooner than you thought possible. But the most important aspect of home is it's the spiritual connection that humanity enjoys with God. So it, it, there's, there is no having home apart from a relationship with God. And I want to say that, that, that we, um, our world doesn't tell us that, right? Our, our world tells us that you can have home as long as you have, a, you, know, have this, you know, have this kind of house or maybe this kind of marriage or these kinds of children, ignoring the fact that we know from our origin story that there is no home apart from a relationship with God. No home apart from a relationship with God. In the garden, humanity walks and talks with God without shame. And this is the part that I want to tell you, this, this temple imagery here, which we, which we would probably skip over, and which I always did until I read John Walton's book, The Lost World of Genesis 1. Um, Gen he's, this is actually Genesis 2. God's finished his work of creation, and on the seventh day, he rested. And John Walton wants to say, you know what, any ancient reader would know there's only one place where God takes his rest, and it's in the temple. This is actually kind of an enthronement ceremony, if you will. So, like, actually in my Bible reading today, just my random Bible reading plan, Psalm 132, it's like, it's a processional of the ark into Jerusalem, God come and take your rest, God takes his rest in a temple. So guess what? Creation is a home for humanity, and it's God's temple. And, and that's the theme that we saw, see all throughout Scripture, right? When God first with the tabernacle and the temple where God says, I will dwell in your midst. That has always been God's intention. We experience home, even partially now, as we have a connection with God. Genesis 1 and 2 tells us why we long for home. This was God's gift to us. It was a gift of place. It was a gift of community. It was a gift of connection with him. And then what happens? Acts, um, act 2, the fall. And we see it splintering on all those different levels, right? It's not just that humanity, um, Eve decided to take the fruit and give it to her husband and, they've, um, and then they died instantly on the spot. They didn't. Death was coming for them, spiritual death and separation from God. But think about how home was affected because of the fall. Number one, it's exile. If we go to at the end of Genesis chapter 3, God puts, doesn't put them in the garden. He puts them out of the garden. And we should read that like with this incredible sense of grief. Genesis 3.23. Therefore the Lord God sent him out 
from the Garden of Eden. This exile, this is the first experience that Adam and Eve have of homesickness. And can you imagine you, God puts you out of the garden, the garden where he'd initially sheltered you, given you his presence. Now they're put out of the garden. And then we look all throughout the book of Genesis where displacement is this theme of God's judgment. Cain kills Abel and he is set to wandering. And the Tower of Babel, the people are dispersed, right? And the flood and all these experiences where people, like place just disintegrates. People don't have a connection to the place that they once did. And then, of course, there's the fracturing of community. Adam and Eve, they're bickering, right? They're this, this, this good relationship that God's given them, this, this experience of home that it's not good to be alone. Experience community, and then all of a sudden they're blaming each other. You know, well, I ate the fruit because, you know, my wife gave it to me. And by the way, you gave, it, gave her to me. So there must be some culpability that you share, God. And then Cain and Abel. I mean, we go to Genesis 4, and then all of a sudden siblings are, there's this, a brother murders a brother? And then enmity with God. It's not just exile from the garden. It's not just the fracturing of human community. It's that Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Genesis 3, 12, I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. I hid myself. A transfer of loyalty has taken place. Because God says, who told you that you were naked? You know, I was the keeper of this house. I was the king of this temple. And you didn't listen and you didn't live. And so I think Genesis 3 tells us why we're a homesick people. We are outside of the garden now. We are still. Even though we can look to Act 3 and Act 4, and we're going to talk about that, I think it tells us a lot about the grief of moving. That, you know, again, to know that place is a gift that God has intended to give to his people. When we are uprooted from our places, there is grief in that. And, and I think it's a grief that we should acknowledge and, and talk about. There is the grief of fractured relationships that we all experience, right? Maybe there's disappointment that you have with your parents, with your spouse, with your children again. Um, there is the grief of spiritual disconnection. That You know, when Augustine says, he says, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. And this is the image of restlessness. Adam and Eve set beyond the gates of the garden. The gates that are now barred by the flaming sword and the, the cherubim that stand guard, right? We were once the subjects of God, the children of his family, and then after the fall were slaves to sin and his enemies, Romans. Paul tells us in Romans 5 and 6. You know, I think about the biblical story of Naomi in Ruth chapter 1. I'm not going to talk about it at length here, but I think that is a story that really illuminates the loss of home in all of these different levels. So Ruth chapter 1, Naomi has to leave um, Bethlehem, the house of bread, incidentally, because there is no bread. 
because there's famine in the land. And so there's this disruption and displacement. And then they get to Moab, and then what happens? Her husband dies, and her sons die. And so there's this fracturing of human community, not even by, by will, just by the, the effects of the fall, right? Death. And then there's this spiritual disconnection where Naomi talks about, I went away full, but when she comes back to Bethlehem, but the Lord brought me back empty. There's, there's bitterness there, and there's, there's a spiritual disconnection. What will heal these griefs that we all experience on these levels? Griefs of, you know, being displaced or being betrayed or feeling far from God? What heals those griefs? Does, I'm curious if this story does. You know, how long does, do, does marriage last? You know, how long do minivans last? You know, how long will our season be of raising our children if we are raising our children? Big houses don't heal these griefs. Perfect families don't heal these griefs because there are no perfect families. Our homesickness has only one promise of healing, and it's the God who binds up every homesick heart. I think about Psalm 143.3. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. What if we could think about God healing our homesickness? That is, a, that is a deep wound that we all have on whatever level it is. It's the God who clothes himself with flesh and enters into the experience of homesickness that is our rescue and our hope. Act one, creation, this home that God gives to his people and we enjoy it with him. Act two, everything kind of shatters and splinters. Act three, what happens? Jesus, John chapter one, the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us tabernacled among us, as the, he, as the Greek would say. This, this whole theme, like I told you, God dwelling in the midst of his people, creation being God's temple. We saw that in the story of Israel, right? We're seeing that with um, even the story of Deuteronomy, that you know, as God traveled with his people through the wilderness, he said, build me a tent and I'll go with you because I'll dwell in your midst. And then when you get to the promised land, what does David say? The second king, this king after God's own heart, he says, I'm going to make God a home. And God says, well, actually, I'm going to make you a home. (laughs) I'm going to increase your family, David, which is an incredible expression of God's grace and generosity. You know, so the temple and the the tabernacle and then the temple and then Jesus Christ himself, the temple of God, because he tells us that he is the temple of God, that all of the fullness of the Father indwells in him, and he pitches his tent right in our midst and takes on, number one, displacement. Jesus Christ was himself displaced, where he left the glory of, of, of heaven, of being at the right hand of the Father, to enter into our homesickness. He knows the grief of displacement, the grief of losing our place. He knows the grief of fractured human community. When he was on the cross, who was there beside him? Not, his, not Peter. 
not the other disciples, John and a few women, betrayed by one of his disciples. Like, he, he knows the grief of being lonely and feeling betrayed and abandoned. And then on the cross, Jesus Christ himself knew our spiritual exile. He takes up the words of Psalm 22 and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus Christ took on the experience of homesickness, of exile, of alienation. And what does he tell his disciples right before his arrest and betrayal and crucifixion? John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. We will make our home with humanity. He tells his disciples, don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. I go to prepare a place for you. Imagine that, that homemaking God of Genesis 1 and 2 has not given up on the project of home. He's not given up on the vandalized world that we live in. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm actually going to repair the world. We know that in Act 3, now this is the paradox, right? That well, on one hand, we know that there's, that there's a rescue. I mean, and it's been affected on the cross. Jesus has taken up our exile, and the day that he walked out of the tomb, he declared an end to exile through death and disease and sin and suffering. And yet, we groan. With all of creation, we're still groaning for our new home. Paul tells us that in Romans 8, 22 and 25. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. We are still waiting for this home story to be complete. The down payment has been paid. The keys have been given, but the house isn't fully renovated yet. But act four, consummation. When Jesus returns, and let us say that this is our only hope of home. Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection, and then his final return to put a broken world to rights. Revelation 21, 3 and 4, the Apostle John looks out at the new home. This new beginning, this new creation, what does he say? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. The dwelling place. Remember how God wanted to dwell with his people in the garden? And then, he, and then he, the tabernacle and the temple and then Jesus Christ himself pitching his tent among us. And then we're going to look forward to a world where God is dwelling again with us, where we see his glory. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. 
neither that shall there be mourning, no, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now, does that resonate deep in your soul to think about your longings for home eventually being satisfied? This, this story won't satisfy our longings for home because it's only short term, right? Even if you get this story, it doesn't, it doesn't last. You know, I learned that when I was um, almost 19, a freshman at Wheaton College, and I got a phone call that my father had died at 49, not sick, this kind of strange cardiac event. Like, that's how fast home disappears. You know, my brother committed suicide five years later. You know, when I, when I talk about home, it, it comes from this deep place, like a place of grief, to experience the grief of this homesick world that just, it cannot satisfy us. We can't, we can't hold on to it tightly enough, can we? But we get to look forward to the world that God is remaking and know that he's faithful because he's renewing just the whole project that he started at the very beginning. He never gave up on that. He never gave up on home and this idea that I will dwell with my people and I will make them a habitable place in which to live. Place is going to be restored to us in the new heavens and the new earth. Perfect relationships are going to be restored to us. And unbroken communion with God will be restored to us in the new heavens and the new earth. And so I just want to say, what are the, okay, that's the real story. But what are the implications if we tell this story? What are the implications of that? I think number one, we, we will try to console our homesickness in all the wrong ways. We will look for love in all the wrong places. Like if I, I mean, to be human is to long for home. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 tells us exactly why. Why we long for home. Because it's something we once had and enjoyed and now we've been severed from. If we, we long for home, but if we think this is the story, that's, this is what we're going to be looking for. We can say that this is good and we can say that this is actually, we know that there's something beautiful about marriage and it represents Christ's relationship with his bride. This is a good story, but it's not the ultimate story. It means if you have this story, praise God and enjoy it and also realize that it is not ultimate. And if you don't have this story, Praise God and remember that you will, with everyone else, enjoy the perfect home. We will long for the wrong things. We will try to console our griefs in the, long places, in the wrong places. I think we leave a lot of people out. I think that there are people, a lot of women, who come into our churches and they think this is the story of home. You know, I live in Toronto and the majority of women in my congregation are not married want to be married, and there is not a Christian man to be found, you know, or not enough of them, I should say. You know, I, I want to tell them that they don't get left out. They get home too, because everyone gets home in the kingdom of God. The other thing that happens here is that if this is our story, the nuclear family is all that matters, right? And we, we forget the importance of the church. Guess what? In the interim, in Act 3, as we look forward to Act 4, we get to experience kind of a partial restoration of home just through the experience of the church. And so let's love the church. 
Let us invest ourselves in the church. Let us not say that all of our hopes have to be invested in our families if we have them. And you know what? And this is just to sort of sum up. We confuse, if this is our story of home, we confuse that, that marriage and, and children, that, that we say that, well, they're not just good gifts, that they're our highest calling. And you know what's interesting is that before the Reformation, people would have said the opposite. That, that they would have said to, you know, abandon marriage and family and to enter a monastery or a convent, that was your highest calling, to be close to God. So I just want to say that's another kind of cultural story we've told in different ways at different times. Let's not say that, let's say that marriage and children are good gifts, and let's not say that they're ultimate ones. Good news for the world. I told you that if we could tell the right story of home, it would matter to the world. You know what? People don't, I mean, I live in an incredibly secular city. I, I'm trying to find ways in, to tell my neighbors and my friends about the good news of Jesus. And it usually doesn't start at the, uh, with a discussion of sin. They're just not even there. But if I could talk to them about their longings for rest, their longings for safety, and belonging, and welcome. If I could talk to them about the refugee crisis and think about that through the angle of home, the biblical story of home, if I could tell them that those longings that you have, there's, this, there's, there's a good God. There's a good story. Could I tell you about that? Tell this story of home to your unbelieving friends. Tell them when they lose a marriage. Tell them when they lose a child. Tell them when they lose a job. Tell them when, when they go bankrupt. Tell them that they're a homesick people and you are too. But you know the homemaker. Tell them that. I am so um, just incredibly encouraged to think about the Inklings at the beginning of um, the 20th century. So this is C.S. Lewis, this is J.R.R. Tolkien. These are the stories that we know and love, Lord of the Rings and Chronicles of Narnia. What you may not understand is that the Inklings at that time, they're coming out of post, they're, it's post-World War I. People go into post-World War I and think, Humanity is on the upward climb, you know, progress, 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 the world is just getting better. And then post-World War I, oh my gosh, look at what we're capable of. And there was so much cultural despair after World War I, and guess who was writing the stories with the happy endings? It was the Christians. It was the Christians, it was Tolkien, and it was Lewis, and people call, talked about the heresy of the happy ending. You know, it's, it's an incredibly um, courageous thing to say that this story actually could end happily for people with they, when they place their trust in Jesus Christ. There's a lot of cultural despair that we have. It is an incredibly broken world, but what if we could kind of take the heresy of the happy ending into the world? And talk about the truest news, the good news of the gospel that God is planning to renovate the house. And he's planning to move back in with his children. Can I satisfy all of my longings for home now? No. <laughs> no. That's the first thing that, that, ha that we have to say is we have to say we're in Act 3. We're post-cross, post-empty tomb. We are not yet into the consummation. Recognize that every home in this life cannot satisfy. 
or can only satisfy temporarily. Recognize that. And then what do you do? Well, let's think about the garden and these, these, these dimensions of home. I think number one, you, first of all, recognize you can't be satisfied. And that, that could sound, I suppose, cynical or maybe a little bit despairing, but that's just realistic. And it's good to have realistic expectations because, you know, if you try to squeeze a dry sponge and get water out of it, you are going to be disappointed. If you try to squeeze this world for a lot of milk and honey and expect it to satisfy your deepest longings for home, it will not. But then what should you do? Root, root yourself in a place. Root yourself somewhere. If you can, like I said, I carry deep regret that we haven't done that. The last seven years we have been in Toronto and we're permanent residents now and we're planning to stay. I hope, I pray, Lord, that we can stay. But I believe there's something really beautiful and holy about investing in a place. And maybe you're just, you know you're in a place short term, but invest in that place. Care about your neighborhood. You know, try to go to a church that's close to where you live and, and just care. You know, visit the same stores and get to know people if you can. Root yourself somewhere and say that that's beautiful and then build a community. Build community, build friendships. And guess what? There's a lot of risk involved in that. There's a lot of risk in allowing people to know you. There's a lot of intentionality that it takes to know other people. Root yourselves in a place, build community, and then live your best life in God's company. Know that Jesus, when he said, if you love me and if you keep my word, I will come to you and my father and we will make our home with you. You know what? We're like, the, the, the New Testament tells us, we're temples. We're actually like the tabernacle. We walk around and God's spirit fills us and in some ways we, are, we experience home because his presence is with us and in us. Live your best life in God's company. Know that restless hearts Find their rest in him. This is a verse that I'm going to close with, and I can probably have a little, just take a few questions if you're interested. Psalm 112.1. How joyful are those who fear the Lord, who greatly fear and delight in his commandments. How joyful are those who fear in the Lord. How joyful are those who live their lives in God's company, experiencing home through his presence. I'm going to pray, and then if you have a couple questions, I can take maybe one or two. We have about four more minutes, and then if you want to talk afterwards, I'll be available as well. God, your grace and generosity are more than we could have ever asked or imagined. To think that you who needed nothing, who enjoyed home among yourself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you opened the circle of your welcome and love to invite us in. And Lord, we confess that we are a people so homesick that we often can try consoling our longings for home in wrong ways. 
We confess that to you. We reach out to you to ask that you would heal our hearts, that you would help us to know that you satisfy our deepest longings for home and yourself, and that we are looking forward to the end of the story, which ends so happily. God, give us the courage and the willingness to share this story with our friends and neighbors who do not know it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You've been listening to the Gospel Coalition podcast. For more gospel-centered resources, visit thegospelcoalition.org. Support for this podcast comes from listeners like you. Learn more and join us at tgc.org slash donate.